Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist in Baton Rouge, also known as the Onc Doc on social media. And today we are meeting with Dr. Corey Painter, who is, first of all, a cancer survivor of something that most people don't survive, um, unfortunately. What she's doing and how she got there to make that stuff change and so that people can have survivorship and the communities you can come from it. And the big one that I'm really excited about is how all of us, like those that have cancer, can both help people in the future that have that may be faced with the disease, how we can learn more, how you can have higher, hopefully, response rates one day. And also, in real time, they're very public in a, in a I will say, an untraditional way on sharing information that's going to help people during their journey right now. So, Dr. Painter, Corey, humbled to have you. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it's such an honor to be here. So the first question I had when I was reading everything about, you know, your background, I think originally was biochemistry, correct? And then now it's really kind of gone very, you know, science and research based. That's not the surprise. But what kind of got you into that? Great question. Thank you so much. Um, I had a very non-traditional track to get to where I am. And um, it started with being a terrible, terrible high school student barely getting out with a degree, then going to college because of peer pressure. Peer pressure doesn't always have to be bad. Um, in my case, I had not, I had no real ambition to be a PhD scientist. I was living in the moment and I was at um, a party in a college town in Amherst and somebody turned and said, hey, what's your major? And when I could provide one because I wasn't in college, Nobody would talk to me. And I was like, hmm, maybe I should go to college. But it was no for all of the wrong, yeah, all the wrong reasons. So I took um, a bunch of math and science classes because I found them interesting. And lo and behold, I found that I actually loved the topic. And so I stuck with it. Um, I ended up, by, you know, fast forward getting my PhD in biochemistry. And then right when I was about to graduate with my PhD, um, was diagnosed with this awful, horrific, very rare, very deadly cancer called angiosarcoma. And that just kind of shifted the balance of my life. I had originally gotten into science and, you know, just in general, because I was just, it was just a, a great interest. And intellectually, I loved it. I just loved it. And as a biochemist, I liked to think about things down to the atomic level. And I would you know, stay up at night wondering if the protein that I adored so much, I was willing to spend seven years of my life studying it, had one atom that was over here or five angstroms over here, you know, and that's where my mind was. So um, yeah, so going from from that to, okay, you're faced with definitely a life-ending diagnosis and no way to do anything to impact it for yourself or anybody else who will ever come behind you because it's that rare and aggressive, go, you know, and, and at that point, everything changed. Oh, my goodness. I got goosebumps while you were saying that. Um, so if you don't mind my asking, or if you're comfortable sharing, like, what did you how did you, you know, treat the angiosarcoma? What did it look like? And really, what was going through your head about kind of the information you were receiving? Because I assume they were pretty bluntly honest about, you know, what it looks like, what your life may or may not be, you know, altogether. How, how did that feel? Yeah, I guess it'd be good to start with um, just the diagnostic odyssey of what it's like to receive a diagnosis like that when it's something so rare. 
because it's not just me. It's a quarter of people who get any cancer have rare cancers. And then, you know, millions of people who have rare diseases, uh, just the diagnostic journey that you go through is quite devastating and something that I don't think a lot of folks really know about um, and therefore can't really appreciate. So let me, if I can just take a minute and just talk about that part of it. And I'm, I'm very open, so you know, ask anything. Um, I noticed something was wrong when I felt a massive lump in my breast. That was like, ha, huh, something's, something's there that's not supposed to be there. And you were how old? I was 30, 35 at the time. So I was 35. And even though I was only 35, I had already been doing kind of routine self-breast exams every month. And I had just done one of these two weeks before. And so two weeks Two weeks before I felt this massive lump, everything was fine. You know, life was golden. I had two and four-year-old little girls, you know, grad student, loving husband, running marathons. Like life was so good. And then boom, this massive lump happened. And of course, like everything tragic happened on a Friday afternoon of a holiday weekend. So I had to just like sit with it. Um, and so obviously the first thing I did was I Google search what massive lump breast and and just by virtue of having a background, I was already, you know, deep into my uh, my my graduate education. I knew enough to filter through kind of the scientific literature and try to really dig into like, what could this possibly be? Is it breast cancer? And um, the way that it felt was completely different than the way um, breast cancer is described in the literature. So breast cancer kind of sits in the tissue and doesn't really move. It's kind of hard. And this thing that was like just like popped up out of nowhere and was the size of a golf ball was kind of flaccid and you can kind of roll it around in the skin. And so I was like, ah, it's got to be fine. It's got to be something benign. There's no way. It doesn't sound anything like cancer. And um, and so I kind of convinced myself it was good. And on Monday, went through the very first uh, uh, steps of a, a, a lifelong odyssey. And um, I will save you the the details, but it took about four months, three different medical teams at two institutions that performed a fine needle aspiration, 11 core needle biopsies, a full resection, MRI, CT scan, you know, full body with and without contrasts, um, sonogram, uh, every type of imaging modality you could imagine, the world's best pathology pathologist. To, to look at, try to figure out what was going on. And then it wasn't until I had the like a, an actual surgery to remove this thing that I got the definitive diagnosis. And along that track, there was misdiagnoses. There was like, you're totally fine or you're totally not fine. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was like, there was no in between. It was like, it's either this like most hideous thing you could think of or it's just like this benign process that will just pop out. And when I had been rolled into surgery, all of us were under the assumption, including my my Harvard doctor, my Harvard surgeon, that it was going to be fine. When I woke up from surgery, my um, my surgeon, you know, sat next to me and said, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've taken a lot of weird things out of a lot of not weird people. And um, when I loafed through this thing there's just no way it's not cancer. And so I went on the on the fly. He was just supposed to give me a lumpectomy, but he performed a, a partial mastectomy. And that I think saved my life because even and he got clean margins, but it took a week for the pathology to come back. And when it came back, it was an intermediate grade, um, three centimeter 
angiosarcoma, which is a cancer that starts in the endothelial cell, which is the cells that align your um, your vasculature, which is why it can pop up anywhere in your body. Mine just happened to be in the breast. Um, and so even though he got clean margins, meaning he cut the whole tumor and the clean surrounding tissues around it, the nature of a sarcoma is that it doesn't form these really nice, well-circumscribed tumors, but rather they put these long tendrils out. And so you can't be sure about your margins, even though they look good, you could have like one cell thick little, um, you know, tendril coming out. And so he went back two weeks later and performed a radical mastectomy and took everything down to the bone. And, um, and then, you know, at that point was just, I, my oncologist was like, I don't know. I mean, we, we don't know what to do. There's no data. And, and like, I'm a data scientist, like there's no data. We can't tell you what to do, but. Um, if you want to look at your kids and say you tried something and he hand wrote out a bunch of different chemos and chemo um, combinations and radiation and chemo combinations in pencil and handed it to me, he's like, pick one. And I was like, what do you mean pick one? I was like, you tell me, like, what should I do? And they just, they had nothing to offer because they just didn't know. And it's, it's not their fault that they didn't know. It's just that there was no way to know. There's like, we're so rare. And even if we had... Um, even if we were common, there's such huge gaps of information missing across the entire spectrum of cancer care that oftentimes it's just kind of a guessing game when you get to the rare subtypes of, of uh, even more common cancers. So I did. I basically like closed my eyes and was like, uh, that one. And I started chemotherapy and I stayed on it long enough to lose my hair and have side effects before I talked to enough sarcoma doctors that I was convinced that um, the only thing I was guaranteeing was that I was going to have side effects from this chemo, from these poisons that I was putting in my body. And because there was no way to know if it was going to like prevent the cancer from coming back or if these things, that these anomalies that were all over my body, and oh, by the way, everybody has them. If, if you scan an image, a swap in the population, everybody's going to have something weird inside of them. Um, and, and in my case, when you have something rare, they can't tell if that's just like a normal weird anomaly or if that's like metastatic disease. And so, the, it, it was, so there was no way to know if this chemo that I was taking was going to impact that or not. And so stayed on it for about three months and then just went off of it and have been watching and waiting for 13 years. I'm glad I was like really nervous that you're like, I'm out one year or two years and you know, then I could... And I'd be like, we can't, can we say, you know, you're good? And, and that, that's extremely comforting. And generally because when things are very proliferative or aggressive or grow fast, like those are the ones where, you know, you can be a little more assured something doesn't happen in three to five years, um, but was elsewhere that generally would declare itself just like you, you know, had a two week interval and saw didn't have something and had something that's very comforting. Unlike for anyone listening, you know, when you have low grade stuff like follicular lymphoma or or hormone positive breast cancer. I mean, you're kind of, you always need to follow up with your oncologist and get your typical surveillance observation stuff for five to 10 years because that's going to come back later. Um, but it's really interesting what you said about it feels weird not to do something because I've been having this conversation with a patient of mine where um, they also have a sarcoma, a type of sarcoma just to de-identify. And, um, and, you know, some of the consensus from radiation and the and the ortho oncologist is well they're very young so you should do like we got to do something because it's aggressive but 
while that philosophy held true 10 years ago, right? 13 yeah. years ago, like you said, because it really is the reason we do adjuvant treatments after a what should and hopefully be a definitive curative surgery. The reason we do it is because we know sometimes you can you have cells left, left around that you can't see. And then that 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 is why. And because how do we know that? They had the recurrence, which oftentimes really is a misnomer. It's a persistence that was yep. able to like declare itself later. So they're like, well, go to MedOnc and get chemo. But the reason I'm cautious now more than ever is because we live in a very unique time where with the insane things that are coming out with targeted therapy, novel therapy, stuff that you're doing on like a, you know, on within the cellular like level even, there is the risk of exactly what you said, not a risk, there's 100% truth that your bone marrow will take an insult during the treatment. And then you can have consequences in your bone marrow that now reduce its tolerance for a potential targeted data-driven therapy, God forbid, if you were to recur or it comes out in a year, and then all of a sudden you have a limitation on the tolerance of that newer therapy that we know works because of the toxicity you incurred. And the ones you're talking about with chemo for that stuff is like, you can have heart stuff, you can have bone marrow stuff. I mean, those are the heavy hitters, I'm sure, like yeah. docetaxel and DCF and all these, you know, kind of very heavy hitting chemos. But yeah. obviously, we'll never know if it made the difference or not, could yeah. have. So you do yeah. have that because you're yeah. 13 years out and, yeah. and that's amazing. So yeah. on that front, it sounds like that's what drove you to say, bro, I don't want other people to be in this situation where it's like, yeah. move your eyes and think <laughs> one. How, uh, how does that look now with data collection and and you know that's a hard needle to move because at the end of the day everything is so expensive and the way that insurance covers it is if it's like data proven and then you have the fda and ncca guidelines and all this stuff yeah. how are you snaking that and going around that to make things that presumably are very expensive but applicable uh without obviously a high cost to the patient yeah it's a great question i don't know that i have like a, i i don't have a definitive answer but I think um, I guess you I, should be at another college party, and then you'll get your answer. I was at a, so I was at three like college parties at the same time. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Still looking so, for the answer. Exactly. I, I will say this: when I was um, when I was diagnosed, I obviously did not think that I had like some grand future that I could make some type of impact. And so, what I did was cast a very broad net, um, trying to do things that I thought could move the needle. And some of them did move the needle. And I'll get to that in just a second. But I think an important part of my own personal journey and growth was to recognize those things that felt really good, but that didn't actually move the needle. You know, And, and they're really hard to admit. They're really hard to um, uh, accept. Yeah, to, to accept. Um, but I think that as, as, a, as humans, the more we're able to kind of shine a light on on real impact versus perceived impact, um, the more likely we are to have solid answers and and change things in in ways that can be truly transformative and not just um, things that just kind of make us feel good. And I want to also couch this in some qualifiers. I will never look at anybody and their efforts and say, that's not moving the needle. You know, I, you can only do this for yourself, you know, and so I don't want anything that I'm going to say that I feel didn't do things for me to be a reflection on other folks who may be down a similar path doing those things. Like I'm not judging anybody for the efforts oh. that they're putting in at all. But for me, you know, with something so rare, 
and I think it'll make sense in a minute when I kind of describe this. It just like, it just dawned on me one day that, oh my, I'm breaking my back trying to do these things. You know, I'm breaking my back. And at the end of the day, nobody is going to live a day longer. You know what I mean? If I continue down that track. And so if I could just describe a couple of these like little vignettes and then talk about the thing that I think did move the needle, that could maybe get us to a little bit closer to your answer. Um, Yes, please. I'm curious. (laughs) So, okay. So the things I tried, I was like, all right, I am going to, I I didn't have the idea. Another um, angiosarcoma patient that I met in a Facebook group had the idea to launch a nonprofit. I was just going to like get money together and give it to a lab. And she's like, no, we need, need to do a nonprofit. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. And her idea was let's get this together. Let's build this initiative. We'll save a thousand dollars and we'll give it to the American Cancer Society and then they'll cure us. And so lesson number one for her really, because I was already a scientist, I was like, come here, my friend, let me, let me have a conversation with you. Like, I love the American Cancer Society. I've got very good friends across the cascade of jobs that are there and they are impactful, but they are not going to be able to cure a rare cancer with a thousand dollars. It's not the way it works. And so I had to talk to her about the infrastructure of how science and research happen. And it may be like, if, I don't know that a lot of people really would have that insight unless they're in the field. But you know, not even doctors. I mean, really doctors. It, it, like exactly, that. unless you're like yeah. a scientist writing for grants. Um, the the so I had to kind of like level set with her and and to to make an impact. I told her I was like to make an impact, and it's only going to be a very marginal impact. You and I need to work together, and we need to raise like fifty thousand dollars, and we need to give that to one lab. And that one lab is probably not even going to be able to study angiosarcoma. They're probably doing something different because not one lab is going to be able to be solvent and support themselves studying one rare cancer. It's just not the way it works ever. There's steps. I mean, you need a lab for like the angio part, the blood vessel part, and then you need a lab for the clinical application. Like those are actually different. Just like you can't build a house with one person. Like you need the HVAC and the electricity and everything. Yeah, That's exactly right. And so like the house, it looks like, so, you know, it's, um, I'm going to borrow from one of my current colleagues who was like, you want me to build a house? And do we have bricks? Do we have wood? Or do we have palm fronds? And I would say like the, the infrastructure for rare cancer is more like the palm frond end of this. Right. So, like, I like that. Yeah. So, um, and so and what it looked like for us is, is um, me, me saying, you know, we need to get $50,000 and then I can use that to convince somebody who, just like you said, who studies like vascular biology to somebody who studies sarcomas writ large, get them to work together, you know, and, and on, on something angiosarcoma related, give them 50 grand. And that 50 grand, this is the part that kind of like tears at people's souls. That 50 grand is going to fund part of a technician's salary for one year. And that technician is likely going to be able to do a couple of experiments. And if those experiments yield positive results, that might contribute one figure or even one panel in one figure in a paper that has to do with something else. And that's, and so it's like when people raise money, like I think, you know, it's great if we need to do it. I don't want anybody to stop, but, but we also have to be very realistic about like, what is, what does it turn into once it's in an actual lab? And so, you know, what it did for us and what it did for my friend after she kind of picked herself off, off the floor was make her realize, okay, we need to do a whole lot more than like $1,000. And so we're now 13 years out and we've raised well over a million dollars and distributed into different labs and got them to collaborate and had a, you know, part of, part of the funding mechanism is that you have to 
open source your data. You have to share your data. Or if you make a sell on, you've got to share it. And really trying to inspire people to be very open and not silo off the data that they generate. And and again, even, and it sounds good, like we raise a million dollars and like a lot of labs. But but the secret the secret is that that's also not going to get it done. You know what I mean? It's it's important. We have to do it. But we can't just feel like okay, we did our job and now it, it's good. We're we're done because really not one person is going to live longer as a result of those efforts either. You know, right. like maybe maybe way down the road, but it's just not enough. It's just not enough. And those are the hard realities to hit because man, it's hard to get just there. That is hard. And so like, what else do you do? Right? Like. Where do you go? And so that was one thing that I like one of the um, areas that I kind of like dove into. And then another area that I dove into was scientifically. I was like, okay, I'm a scientist. I was going to study ALS because I had a friend dying of it while I was going through this. And I'm like, and and so I was going to dedicate my life, my, my biochemistry skills to studying ALS when I got my own diagnosis. And I was like, uh, okay, what do I do? Maybe, maybe I can do something impactful for cancer. And uh, so I, I, wrote for a, a grant and I didn't get it. And I was like, ah, how can I ever make an impact here? And it occurred to me that maybe I don't write a grant for my own super rare cancer that nobody wants to fund. Maybe what I do is I look for something that would mimic my cancer or be similar to my cancer that somebody would fund. And I can learn a bunch of lessons there and help those people and those patients and then take those and cascade them into angiosarcoma. And so that's kind of the track that I took. So I started looking into cancers that could be proxies for angiosarcoma and came up with melanoma. And I came up with melanoma because long story short, I found I found through my network the original notes from a doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering from the late 1800s named William Coley. And he had made these observations that when his sarcoma patients were getting high fevers, sometimes their tumors spontaneously regressed. So there was a connection between the immune system and cancer. And at the time when I was diagnosed, the only other cancer that had any light sh that was shining on it because there was a connection between the immune, um, the immune system and, and, it, and the cancer was melanoma. And I was like, what if I study melanoma and I can learn about this field called cancer immunology, which was not a thing yet, and then maybe I could apply that to angiosarcoma. Wow. And so I wrote for, and I did get a grant from the Cancer Research Institute, which is a funding agency and organization that is near and dear to my heart. I love them. And, um, and I got a three-year postdoc grant to study melanoma. And so I did that. So, so nonprofit's still going, still churning, right? And then doing the postdoc in cancer immunology and melanoma and having two young kids, it was like, it's a crazy time and thinking I was going to die like in three months. So it was like, a, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And, um, and the postdoc itself yielded a lot of really compelling data. And then, you know, I was kind of like not dying yet. And I was like, okay, well now what, you know? And so I, I had this whole career track where I was going to go be a, a principal investigator. So be a PI studying melanoma, help melanoma patients. And at some point, maybe sneak in an angiosarcoma paper, right? And and like because I had already been an advocate and I had recognized that same feeling, like I could do this. It's gonna feel really good, you know, and I can have like a storied career as scientist and I can make a lot of discoveries and publish really well. But but are angiosarcoma patients actually going to live longer if I do that? Not really. 
not really, you know? And so I was like, ah, and so again, the impact just wasn't what I thought I, what was needed to, you know, like, not that I could do anything, but that was really needed to make, um, to really move that needle. And so I, you know, was at, at this crossroads, I had applied for a grant that would enable me to go from a postdoc to an individual, like to an independent, um, investigator PI of my own. And, um, I got it. It was this, it's called a K99 award. It's like the holy grail for what postdocs that are PhD scientists want. It gives you like a couple years of funding in the current lab and it gives you three years of funding at the institution that you want to go to. And at the time I had an, like, um, an extended offer from MD Anderson, um, from the chief of the sarcoma and melanoma group there. And like, it was, it was such an incredible opportunity and I could have just been like, you know, it was like what every scientist would ever dream of, except if you have a time, a ticking time bomb and you don't care about your career anymore. And you're like, actually, let's peel it away and only talk about impact. And it's just not there. And so I was starting to look for a job. I just wanted any job at all to, you know, that was going to be like intellectually easy because being a PI is not, you know, it's like a thousand percent effort. I wanted a nine to five so that I could, you know, continue with my nonprofit because I thought I could do way more as an advocate funding a bunch of labs than I could as it one, you know, leading my own lab in melanoma. So I looked, I was looking for jobs at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, because if you're a PhD scientist, there is no better place. Like it is, it is like Shangri-La, you know, like insanely smart people doing insanely massive projects. It was incredible. And so I was looking for jobs for biochemistry jobs because it's like that's where my my mind is happy. It's way easier than cancer immunology. Like you know, it's just like whatever. It's it's an, it's it was where I wanted to be. So I'm like bees looking for the jobs that start with B for biochemistry. When I and so I'm literally just going through the alphabet of jobs they have, and I see one for the associate director for scientific outreach, and I was like, ooh, what's that? And um, so I click on it. And it was like somebody made a job description of my life, right? They wanted, <laughs> they wanted somebody who was a cancer research, um, you know, scientist who understood the perspective of a cancer patient and who understood the nonprofit landscape. And the kicker was that they wanted this person to also be a risk taker. And I was like, okay, all right. I met my husband skydiving. I was a whitewater raft guide. I lived in a van for a year and I'm a scientist. And I'm like all those things like, check, 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 check. And so I um, I got that job and it was uh, the place where I felt finally like I have a shot at moving that needle. And um, and that the, the needle was actually in a completely different space. It didn't have anything to do with rare cancer or angiosarcoma, but I recognized it. I knew, I knew it immediately that if we could do this thing that they were looking for, and we could do it well and help a bunch of patients with a common cancer, we could point it toward angiosarcoma. And that's what happened. Wow. That is incredible. So I have to ask this. This is kind of a, a little off, you know, off the science-based stuff. But when something happens like that, and it may not even be in the podcast, but, but I kind of want it to be. Do you feel, because I feel this way through my life. First of all, you look, I, I just, you're saying all this and I'm like, she looks younger than I do and I'm 35. <laughs> like, so it's just, it's crazy. And you are my person on earth now. No, it's blowing my mind. Like, it's just, you know, all the things that you say, people say you carry stress in this. And I'm like, she's either 
meditator or yogaist or you know like it's it's crazy or just zen or or a virgo i don't know something (laughs) but but um do you feel like do you feel it's serendipity or do you feel because i studied philosophy in undergrad and when you really look at the relationships on a physics level and atomic level and the electrons and when you start to realize we're just kind of a sea of being that's more like matter and not matter and, and then how it ties into time and space if you really want to get quantum how do you feel about the world do you think it's just entropy and 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 growth or do you think there was some facilitation for these events to line up to, for you to make overall the world a better place as corny yeah it's it's a it's a fair question it's a good question and i don't know that um I think that like at that level, I think I have very weird metaphysical beliefs that are grounded in biophysics. And so um, I do think that everybody is in everything and every atom across the universe is interrelated. And it has to do. And, and the reason I feel this way is uh, uh, based off of um, electron micrographs that you generate when you're solving a protein crystal structure. Um, when you have a crystal and it's made of proteins all arranged in like a similar repeating pattern and you bombard it with electrons. The electrons will hit different atoms in that crystal and then be refracted at different angles and at different intensities based on the arrangements and the density of the electrons within the protein. Mm-hmm. And you put um, you put a film basically, for lack of a better word, even though it's not, um, but you put film like, 360 degrees around this and you capture every single refracted electron and it's so if you took one piece of film it would have a bunch of dots all over it and it would it would have little teeny tiny dots at the periphery and it would have big massive dots that were toward the center of um of the piece of film and every one of those dots contains information about every single electron in that protein, but the information is different. And so you must integrate all of the information from every single dot in order to get a clear image of what it is you're seeing and trying to interpret. That is how I think humans come together. I think we're all reflections and we're all like able to understand and take away different elements of the same thing that we could never understand. You know, we're, we're, we're never going to touch that crystal structure. We're never going to know what it is. All we're ever able to do is like be mindful enough to know we're some sort of refracted element. And if we could just learn how to work well with the other people in, in, you know, other refracted images, we could come together and really understand a lot more than what we do if we just see ourselves as unique and unrelated to anybody or anything. No, I love that. But my one question would be, I use a similar analogy that I wrote in, in, in undergrad, or, yeah, undergrad, and it was how saying like, whether it was core truth or core being or core existence, not even existence beyond that, if it was just true principle, and you have a quarter, when you put a paper on top of it, like, Every time, like in grade school, you would do a pencil across, right? If you just do a couple, you have a very unclear picture of what's under there. But if you keep doing it, keep doing it, you see these really, de- you know, well-defined kind of borders. You see George Washington's face, and you can make out the fact that it's a quarter. So you have a good idea of what is the underlying, honestly, truth. It's not something to be discovered, but just what is. Yeah. But that those strokes take harmony, because if you're at odds with one another in the world, and it's like, 
you'll do a strike here and a strike there. And then you're like being counterproductive. Um, but what would you, what do you think the injection, if we all are like, we're obviously all like, I think of avatar, the movie or like, you know, an ocean, like we're all in a matter, in a matter sense, uh, atomical matter, a cascade, right? A wave, like an ocean. What do you think are the injections that are actually bouncing off though? Like, is that truth? Is that God? Is that, is it, is it right? Like what is, yeah. what is the outside of our plane and dimension that we are trying to perceive? I think it's energy. I, I, again, I don't, I don't, um, everything, everything for me comes down to energy and, um, you know, the, the interpretation, especially with waves are whether or not you can align so that you are, you know, transmitting that energy most fundamental. Yeah. I say that all the time. Like the world <laughs> tells you, puts you in a direction. Right. And that's the point is like the serendipity. You can be resistant and, and refractory, literally. That's why it's a term for like a, a characteristic. Or you can be receptive and have it inward. And if you take it inward and you don't take it as vanity, like you said, that you gave yeah, a great yeah. example. You're like, I could have gone to, you know, that institute and done melanoma and it's a dream. And for me, it's a similar thing. They're like, what are you trying to do with social media? And I'm like, I'm not trying to get you know, famous, right? There's like TV shows where they want me on Netflix stuff. I'm like, that's just not what the world will. It's not what I feel because when you let it inward, it goes outward. And the, and the better you can ride that wave, I think the more, you know, something is potentiated, but I don't know what it is. Is it the world's will? Is it like, like, is it a game where it's like, we just try to be in the best, you know, I don't know that part, but anyway, we're digressing, but, uh, for, for off camera conversation some other day. Um, excellent. So, so for people that have back to, back to our usual programming, um, for people that do have, um, angiosarcoma or any of these rare diseases that you're talking about, they, I know, there's, I think, little that's as amazing of an aid as community because like the that feeling of identity, of being understood, of like, I'm not alone is huge. And that's what yeah. I think I've been really humbled about coming into practice. You don't learn about this stuff in med school and fellowship, right? Um, is is just the community building, like whether it is breast cancer or colon, but Andrew Sark and everything. Um, for somebody that does have a rare disease, there's no catch all where they can just find out where the communities and blogs are. Is there yeah. or is there? No, in fact, I try. I tried and failed to to try to understand as much as I could about my about angiosarcoma when I was diagnosed, and it was 13 years ago. So things weren't quite as rolling as they are now with respect to resources online. But I, you know, I, I first I went to PubMed because that's where you go as a scientist to get information, and um, typed in angiosarcoma, and I, the first return was so devastating. It was long-term survivor of angiosarcoma lives one year and it was a case study and i was like uh, uh you know it was, it was, i was like no and so i was like i'm not getting information there so i went to google and at that point just like you said i i was like i can't know this scientifically but i need to know the humanity here and so i was yeah. just looking for even one other person who had survived this just so i could be like ah because you do, you feel like you're floating in a hurricane in the middle of the ocean with no buoy, no island, nothing to to kind of latch onto, no direction. Even if you wanted to swim, where you get, which direction do you go? Like there's literally you're just like literally just holding your breath and trying to stay afloat. And um, that human connection can pull you out of the depths of despair, like almost nothing else. So I would type in like you know, angiosarcoma survivor. And I would find other people and they would be looking too. And I'd be like, oh, found you. 
And I would try to reach out to them or like email them or stalk them, find them. I don't care. And uh, they would never reply to me. And so then I would take their name and I would put the word obituary after it and they pop up every time. We care. So sad. And so it was like such a last ditch effort. But I went to Facebook and I'm like, social media. Uh, all right. What is this thing, Facebook? And I went and I typed in angiosarcoma and there was a group. And I was like, what is that? And I, t- I clicked on the group and there was, I think, nine other people in there, including Lauren Ryan, the woman with whom I started the nonprofit. And they were alive and they, they understood the disease and they, they all had their like ideas of like which doctors to see. And, you know, I was going to get a mastectomy. You need this type of shirt that buttons down because you'll have limited range of like I didn't know any of that kind of stuff. And so they had very practical information for me. They, they knew how to talk to your kids. You know, like some of them had kids my age. They they had been through it. It was such a life raft. Yeah. So that's amazing. There's like, I mean, that's what, yeah. What's that? There's over, I think there's a couple thousand people in that group now. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Before you were exceptionally inspirational, fun, and just your whole attitude about everything is, is truly just inspiring. I can't think of any other word, but um, is there anything else you want to share or let people know about? I think a lot of our listeners or either in oncology, but but I think a lot of survivors are, are surviving with, you know, cancer. Anything yeah. about anything? Yeah, I'd love to just talk just in more, one more minute about the what happened at the Broad after I started there. Oh, it, yes, like, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, so so we started, um, I was brought I was brought on to um, really kind of operationalize an idea that the that the institution's leaders were having at that time. So it was like, Eric Lander and Todd Golub, and they were they had been surrounding themselves with people like Nick Wagley and Ellie Van Allen, who were kind of you know junior oncologists, really coming up um, in their careers uh, at Harvard and at the Broad Institute. And the idea was let's reach cancer patients wherever they are. They they shouldn't have to wait to go into a brick and mortar facility that happens to be studying their cancer. Let's like. There's so much waste out there with respect to like tumors that get taken out of patients that sit on a shelf after after the diagnosis. Like, let's get the tissue into research and make discoveries. And so I came in to help them t- with that grand idea, put it in motion. And so we built what was called the metastatic, it's still called the metastatic breast cancer project. And to do this, um, we engaged with dozens of metastatic breast cancer patients that we were that we knew in real life that we met online that we've never heard of before and um, basically crowdsourced the best practices for engaging with their community so that if we were to build something it would be resonant and we built this anybody can see it it's at um mbc for metastatic breast cancer mbcproject.org built it with the the community in mind and and the project itself was a way to provide consent from the patient for patient to be able to provide consent so that we could get copies of their medical record, some of their stored FFPE tumor samples, saliva and blood, and, and, and produce multi-omics data that would be clinically annotated and just open source it after you know stripping it of the identifiers so that the biomedical community could use it at scale and not have to invest in that oh. massive infrastructure so fast forward to today, and we have over 7,000 women and men, because men get it too, um, metastatic breast cancer patients that are part of that project. And um, we're putting our first paper out um, into BioArchive probably next week or the week after, really fully describing 
um, several hundred clinically annotated tumors, some of them longitudinally collected with the intervening genomics and the, you know, the treatment history. So you can kind of parse out who on an aromatase inhibitor blew through it and what were the associated genomics. Um, and so that's all out in the public domain already. And we're just putting a position paper so people can understand the data. But we, so we built this, launched it, it was successful. And then we pointed it to angiosarcoma back in 2017. And, you know, in the first day, the super rare cancer that only 300 people get a year, 63 people joined the, the day we launched. 63. Oh. There's over like 700 people now that have joined this project since 2017. And within two years of, of launching that project, we made discoveries and, and did not wait to publish them, you know, because we're, you know, we just, our whole thing is open source. So we just told everybody, we're like, look at what we found. Here's all the data, do something. And a bunch of um, sarcoma doctors were like, okay, we'll take it. And they've made several clinical trials. Some of those clinical trials are already completed and validated our findings and published. And so we were able to publish um, our discoveries in, in um, Nature Medicine in 2019. And we published at the same time that the first clinical trial using the same data published their positive findings. And so it's been um, practice changing and it all loops back to that original, um, the original notes that I found from that doctor from Memorial Sloan Kettering in cancer immunology. So the discovery that we made has, um, is embedded in that, that type of science. So I just want to, and then if anybody's interested, you can learn more. The project is now open to everybody with any cancer and you can um, learn all about it at joincountmeetin.org. I, I just have chills. Anyone that wants to like either obviously further research and figure out why, like why I always every day have to say this is 75% chance of response, 80%, 30%. A lot of people are like, well, I have colorectal cancer or they even say it's right-sided or it's BRAF negative. And why isn't it 100%? Well, that's because there's obviously a multi, there's a toolbox for things that are sensitive or resistant and just so people understand, you are trying to recognize, okay, we know these three, four relevant stuff. We have a whole bunch of undetermined significant stuff. Yeah. How can we determine their significance? Yeah. We see what happened. And so these people are very like, you know, just altruistically saying, yes, please, like you can have the all the undetermined mutations and let's just see what happens in my life. So that yeah. can maybe hopefully make a difference regardless. And on the flip side, it sounds like they can actually go ahead and also like you're putting that stuff out in real time on like yeah. what you're observing so that if somebody, you know, you know, has cancer and has their genomic profile, which is still blows my mind. Stage four is apparently 15 percent still don't get sequencing across the yeah. country, like in the community. Yeah. Yeah. But then they can look and say, like, you know, if the doctors like and doctors do that, pick one full Fox or full theory for colorectal or, you know, whatever then then you know maybe that would be able to help aid that kind of kind of thing so that's that's huge it's like it, it's both something that's a resource and something that like is put outward kind of goes back full circle to what we were talking about earlier yeah. <laughs> bouncing that is exceptional i'm gonna definitely help in any way i can uh to get people to to register um thank you and i'm sure like there's you know one thing we didn't talk about which i'm sure you've explored is like the renal cell also is with melanoma and just like i feel like they kind of share you know, they still recommend, I think, on NCC and IL-2, which is mm -hmm. the same concept of fevers and cytokines and you know, leukins, to mm -hmm. really propagate uh, the immune system. So I'm sure yeah. there's some, some shared, especially especially with renal cell, that's anything but clear. It's like yeah. I still am telling patients. And unfortunately, 
lot of the medullary is a lot of minorities. And obviously there's always less, you know, data, but sickle cell we know has a more medullary. And mm-hmm. I just have to tell them, I'm sorry, I don't know so much about this one or nobody does. And that's sad. Right. Right. Yeah. So, well, and that's, yeah. that's another area that count me in. We're, we're deeply, deeply committed to trying to um, engage with, uh, with diverse communities because we cannot just continue on the track that we are as a, as a community of scientists and doctors. We can't just have data from like, you know, one homogenous population of people. We can't do right. that. It just, it, it's never going to get us there. So No, or the ones that occur mostly in, you know, a homogenous majority group. So yeah. All right, Corey, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. 